Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here for the next episode of Anything and Everything. And this is with Jeff Madoff. And last time we spent a full hour on just establishing the basic framework of intellectually understanding why certain things are brands and they persist over long periods of time. And despite enormous research and investment, in creating a brand, they fail more than they succeed. And the reason is they don't have magic. Jeff, I think you've probably been feeling about it since you were doing movies in your parents' basement, but you probably, when it actually became something that you sized up things by whether they had magic or not in the communication business, the clothing business, you know, the packaging business that you've been throughout your life. When did this become almost like a major checkout, whether there's magic before you check out anything else? Well, I was really fortunate because when I started off, my first clients were Halston, who created a very significant fashion brand, Ralph Warren, who created the largest fashion brand, and Estee Lauder, who had the major cosmetics brand. So I began to learn about a brand and what makes a brand. Probably it was in the late 70s when I started working with them. I actually worked with and met Estee Lauder, who used to mix things in her basement and then sell these creams and so on. You know, which was just like in the cauldron, you know, mixing the things at Hadassah meetings. <laughs> and that's how she got started. You know, Ralph started with making a tie wider than anybody else did and created a unique offering. And by the way, with Ralph, when he went to Bloomingdale's to sell those ties, the first thing they did was say to him, you need to make it narrower, you know, because it's wider than all the other ties. And to use Dan Sullivan language, that was his distinctive difference. Mm -hmm. And he knew it. And then they wanted the Bloomingdale's keeper for the back part of the tie and the label. And he said, no, it's Ralph Lauren. And he was prepared to walk. Mm -hmm. They gave in to him and built a historic relationship that helped him build his business. My definition of the buyer in any situation is the one who can walk. Right. That's a great definition. And that's the best position to be in when you're negotiating. Mm -hmm. You know, even if it's not true, but you make the other person believe that you're prepared to walk. So in the 70s, you know, you obviously had these three great brands as future clients, you know, and that type of thing. But just what was happening in American culture in the, and you were in New York, that's always been one of the epicenters of American culture. What was happening that kind of thrilled you, actually. I mean, that's what I find. There's some things that I fall in love with. For example, we have Pandora, and I've just gotten days and days of Roy Orbison. And I think that Roy Orbison may be the one pop singer who created his own genre that nobody else can match. Maybe Katie Lane can sing along with him and she can do some songs. But Elvis, they were good friends, Elvis and Roy Orbison. And Elvis had already made it, then Roy Orbison was just coming up. Elvis was interviewed about, you know, about his life. And he said, well, he says, you know, I'm, I'm not the greatest singer in the world. He said, the greatest singer in the world is Roy Orbison. He said, anything that I've ever sung, he can match me or improve on it. And nobody else can sing anything that he can sing because he's got four octaves in his song. And what I've struck is that he's become huge since Pandora. Like Roy Orbison is one of those huge players that Pandora, and he's been dead. You know, he's died at 52 a long time ago. But his songs are deeply emotional, and they're kind of unusual for a man to sing that type of song, you know. And he was, you know, he was a motorcycle rider. I mean, he had the complete other background. He was, his dad, I think, was an oil worker. You know, they're either oil workers or cotton pickers, I mean, the, in the background. And he wrote all his own music. A lot of people don't know that he wrote all his own music. And 
He was a great guitar player. And I'm just noticing how how emotionally I'm involved with his music, you know. And that tells me that probably he's a brand, like Roy Orbison is probably um, a brand. You know, I mean, there's a lot of professions where death is a good career move. But the uh, beneficiary, unfortunately, who should be the beneficiary, doesn't get to profit from yeah. it. Yeah. And we'll talk about that as we go, because you have personal experience with that recently. But we've established that the impact of a brand is that it's emotional and that it creates a relationship. And you mentioned just before the end of our last podcast that there's a trust factor where people grant the product or the service or the individual, whatever we're talking about, kind of a permanent monopoly if they don't screw it up. Mm -hmm. So let's look at the issue of trust and how does that impact a business? And the damage that lack of trust can do is tremendously amplified as a result of social media because the response comes really fast and can be really powerful. So an example, a clear example that most people may have heard of is Uber. You know, Uber really had the market, the total market for the private car on call using the technology of GPS and the cell phone really smart, really early to build that business. Then what happened is that they lost the trust of the people because what was actually happening in terms of the way that employees were treated, the way that some drivers treated their passengers and all of that had a huge impact on the business. And that gave an opportunity for a company they were looking to possibly buy, which was Lyft, to actually start evening the stakes a little bit in the game because trust in Uber was totally eroded. So if you make a claim or a promise as a brand, you know, as American Express, when they would say accept it everywhere, then you better be. Because if you present your card when you're somewhere and they say, well, we don't take that, and it's supposed to be accepted everywhere, and you're at a place that you have no alternative, that's going to erode trust. So they're very careful not to do that. And so I think trust is a huge thing. We've seen that in celebrities too. You know, Miramax had a great reputation for a high level of taste in movies. Yeah, and they cleaned out the Oscars. I mean, it was Miramax week, you know, the Oscars for about 10 years, 10, 12 years, and gone with one article. Yeah. Yeah. So the trust went. Yeah. And we saw that with Bill Cosby. Well, I think the other thing right now, we've just seen it because in our first go at branding, we talked about Apple and Microsoft. And I found that Bill Gates, for me, never had a pleasant kind of reputation, everything else, but he had turned ruthlessness into kind of an admirable trait. He got 95% of the market. There's a great quote by Bill Gates. He said that every year without fail, regardless of what was happening, twice during the year, he and Steve Jobs would go out for dinner because they were teenagers together. And they had literally created the personal computer. I mean, if you take the two of them, put them together, they created the personal computer world. He said that he would sit there for an hour and a half with his mouth slightly open two hours and he just sit into Steve Jobs and he just come away, his mind just totally shifted. And on the way home, he said, I had to pinch myself to remind myself that I own 95% of the world market. <laughs> <laughs> he was involved in all these things, you know, his philanthropic adventures. And I know people who are in that world and they say, all they do is flood something with money and everything loses focus because they can just put a million, billion dollars, they can put a billion dollars into something and they haven't done any of the groundwork on it. They just put a billion dollars, they favor somebody over somebody else. And he says it, it just rips the whole ecosystem of the charity or philanthropy together. But there's two words that nobody can afford these days with your reputation. Jeffrey Epstein. Uh -huh. If your name is mentioned with Jeffrey Epstein, there's no recovery. Yeah, because you tarnish the brand and you introduce 
trust and you don't feel you can trust. And there's no explaining it. You know, we were just in the same place at 16 times. Right. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> and again, that's social media. Yeah. Because that social media has a much longer memory than the newspapers do. Yeah. In a perverse way, would you say that Jeffrey Epstein was attempting to create a brand for himself? I mean, you know some of the you know, economic organizations that were involved in the background of his role. But I got a sense that, you know, his mansions and his islands and that was to actually create a, a particular type of brand. I would say... Not for everybody, but... I would say not a brand. I would say for a particular... Insurance? <laughs> well, for a particular very wealthy following, he had a reputation. And there's a difference. He wasn't trying to appeal to the general public. No, no, he was. And so it was very targeted. So I don't think he was trying to build a brand. And I think he was, I don't know this, but my guess is he was smart enough to stay under the radar, yeah. which he did for a long time. And he had protection. He had high and mighty protection. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know. Yeah. It's an interesting thing because... I always feel that the criminal world has everything that the non-criminal world does, except in reverse. It's like looking in the mirror and everything's reversed. Like the, I'm sure in the the prison system, in the gang warfare, there's just as much branding and marketing that goes on that goes on into the legal world. Uh, let's say the about criminal world, that reputations and uh, being able to enforce your reputation, and that is probably really huge. Yeah, I mean, considering that there are still movies being made about Al Capone yeah, and just the uh, reputation that is a part of that. Well, Andre Norman, you know, who we know through Joe, Andre Norman, who was in prison for 14 years, I think 18 to 32, something like that, in solitary for two years. But he said the first thing you did when you got to the new prison is you established your reputation, that you were the toughest guy. And he tells that one story, which I, great book, and I really like him. We've had him on a guest on our discussion groups, and I find him, first of all, he's very smart. He was smart when he was going bad, and he's smart when he's going good. You know, he's smart. He was talking about how he was in solitary, and they put him back into his cell and he was hungry so he told the guard to open his cell and he did and he went down to the next set of gates and he said I, i'm going to the kitchen just open it up and the guards opened it up and he went through three gates got into the kitchen and cook was there and he said i'd like a burger with fries and the manager of the kitchen came in and says who are you you're not supposed to be here we're going to call the guards and have you take he says um I'm getting my burger and my fries. The guy says, well, this is, I'm right. he says, can I ask you a question? Are you going home after work tonight? And he says, yeah. And he says, got a wife? He said, yeah. Got kids? And he said, oh, I'm just going to get my burger and my fries. And the manager says, make that two burgers and fries. <laughs> well, that's a form of branding. You know, it's a form of, you know, all he does is saying, we probably know where your wife and your kids live, you know. I mean, which in prison talk is a marketing position. And a threat. Yeah, yeah, it's a threat. But what I'm saying is that we've talked about two people here who crossed the line, Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein. So the two of them crossed the line and people affiliated with them. You know, if you had close connections and everything like that, if they get branded bad, you get branded with them. Well, so... What might be useful is let's draw the distinction. And they're both magical. They're both magical when you think about it. In what terms? Well, we can say that this person did all this to become who they were, but it's like janitors after the circus has left town explaining what happened on the previous weekend because of elephant poop. <laughs> so, you know, these after the term, this is why people really become famous. Well, it's an explanation, but if you did what they said and what they explained, it probably wouldn't work for you. Well, that gets into a whole other area, which I call the myth of replication. 
Okay, that's part of magic, though, because it's magic that makes you want to replicate somebody else's, how they did it. Yes, and then, of course, the perception is, well, they were lucky enough to catch lightning in the bottle, but it doesn't strike twice, you know? But I think the difference between a brand and reputation is that a brand has a presupposed business attachment to it, and that a reputation is anchored to an individual. Mm -hmm. And what the reputation is, is what people say when you leave the room. Mm. So when you leave the room and people either sing your praises or say, you know, that guy's a cutthroat or whatever, I think that's reputation, but it doesn't necessarily translate to what a brand is. So does the brand... What happens to people's thinking before you come into the room and the reputation is what people say after you leave the room? Well, I think brand attaches more to business. Yeah, because brands don't suddenly appear in a moment, do they? No, they don't. No. You know, they're built over time. I mean, I'm asked all the time, people will say to me, well, we're just starting out, but when should we start thinking about what our brand is? You know, because I'm no Ralph Lauren. So when should I start thinking about that? And I said, as soon as you start your business. I said, Ralph Lauren wasn't the Ralph Lauren you know when he started. Apple wasn't the company you know when they started. They were working out of a garage. So having a vision of where you want to go and how you want to achieve your goals doesn't mean that you don't iterate, pivot, whatever, but it's important to have that from day one. Mm -hmm. And so I think that a brand evolves. And as you get a bigger audience, you can't be a brand and not have a big audience. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a prerequisite to having a brand is that you're addressing a larger audience. Well, you're in the thick of this right now, Jeff, because of the Broadway play, the Broadway musical that you've been at now for at least three or four years. Yeah, like six, seven. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that started with doing a documentary interview with what I think is the original cross the bridge into rock and roll personality star, Lloyd Price, who, I mean, a lot of people go back to 56, 57 for rock and roll. We're talking about 51, 52. That's right. With Lloyd Price. This is way before it had even been named. Because I know where it was named and I know who named rock and roll. And it was Cleveland, Ohio. That's right. Alan Free. Alan Free. That's right. Who later had the great distinction of going to prison for... His top 10 club, his top 10 club. Well, Payola. Payola, yeah. He was paid by the record companies to put their records on the top 10, and he went to prison. So very truly American story. Isn't it interesting, by the way, you mentioned that, and I think about, you know, my book came out this past summer, and I know how people and have learned how people game the system. Oh, Yeah. We know some of them because we're using some of them. You know, with our book, our book came out last fall, and there are people who have tricks that trick the New York Times, they trick the other ones into believing that if somebody buys 10,000 copies, those were 10,000 individuals. (laughs) That's right. And it's interesting because is that really any different than payola? Not really. (laughs) Yeah, isn't that? uh, I, you know, when I, entered into promoting my book. The only thing is that the direct thing that they'd be paying the New York Times to do the review, and I don't think that happens. Not in that way. Right. Uh, Not in that way. A little indirect to find your way through that door. you know somebody who knows somebody, and they happen to be the reviewer, and you have a dinner that nobody else could have dinner, but I don't think money exchanges hands. Well, it does in terms of buying quantities of books. Yeah. That you know, gets the attention. Yeah. Anyhow, it's interesting with Lloyd, by the way, Alan Freed rented office space from Lloyd on 57th <laughs> Street in New York City when uh, wow. Freed moved. This here. is after Cleveland or before? After. Yeah. After Cleveland. Yeah, because yeah, he was downtown Cleveland and the Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is just a few blocks away from the concert that he was pushing, then he used the words rock and roll for the first time. Yeah, and I wonder if people realize that's why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is located in Cleveland. Yeah, 
Yep. You know, which is interesting. But now you're alluding to the the play. Are you talking about an individual and a brand or? No, I'm talking about you because you're giving advice in the new school saying, when do I start my thinking about branding? You right. say, when you start the business. Well, you've started a business that's been in operation for a long time because it's the nature of theatrical productions, period, but theatrical productions that are aimed for Broadway, that the thinking and the work on them starts and the paying for them starts a long time before opening night. It's like an app. There's no difference between what you're doing and what my venture capitalists in Silicon Valley talk about. Yeah. And like Silicon Valley, it's not the product, it's the team that you're putting together. That's right. I mean, you have the advantage that I doubt if there's anyone still out there in rock and roll history who's as prominent, who is unknown as the individual that you chose. I mean, incredibly well known by everybody in the world of rock and roll, but not known by the general public necessarily. No, that's right. We've been talking about that lately because there was... It was like there was another founding father who was there when the Declaration of Independence was signed, but the painter just couldn't get him, so he just left him out. (laughs) (laughs) And they took his signature off. They said, well, if we can't account for the signatures with the painting, we're just going to leave him out. (laughs) But, I mean, that whole experience has been really fascinating. But from the get-go, thinking about, because I have to think about, you know, so why are we telling this story? How do you market that story? You know, because plays, if you're fortunate enough to become something like Hamilton, all you need to do is say the name of that play, and it just resonates with the notion of success. And it's also unique and was also a game changer, and those kinds of things don't happen that often. But you do have to, I think, whatever business you're in, start thinking from day one You can't think about your reputation in the same way because your reputation is ultimately the product of other people's opinions of you. Mm -hmm. Now, a brand is, too, if you violate the trust. Otherwise, that brand is the story that you tell that hopefully resonates with those consumers. And the magic happens if there is something unique that you could have never planned that somehow happens, that kind of spontaneous combustion happens, that it gets the attention and your message gets repeated over and over. And that repetition is a reinforcement for what you've done. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. The thing that you've brought from the investment side is that you have a sterling reputation in New York City over the last 20 or 30 years with a powerful community of very, very creative people. And you also have relationships with the investment community, either personal or other people who get interested in the project, that you can raise the money using the odds of a play making a big gun. There are massive odds against you of having a winner, but I've seen the first packaged presentation of personality. And I've seen Motown and I've seen Million Dollar Quartet and I've seen probably five or six movies that depict the life story of very famous musicians. And I don't think they can hold a candle to what you've created, both script-wise and also the actors that you put together. The music is the music that was written 60 years ago, so it carries itself. But I got a sense because I was there I had the rare opportunity and, you know, you had to kind of use some of your muscle to get Babs and me into the audience because they have strict rules on early presentations on Broadway and then the Actors Union and everything like that. But I was amazed at how well it was put together from a music standpoint. There was nothing that was extraneous to the central message of the play. There was nothing thrown in that was extraneous. Everything fit, you know. So that's an outside person. I mean, and I have to disclose here that 
I've got a very, very minimal, Babs and I have very minimal investment in the project, but it was fun to do that. It was to actually be part of something that we did it. But I, I have a sense that you have magic on your hands. Well, thank you. Wait, and I think wait. about the talent that you pulled in, partially aided because nothing else was going on Broadway for the last 15 months, that you've really attracted people. And I don't think you attracted them because it was better than they were working on. It attracted them because for the last year you've had their full attention. Well, it's interesting because it's actually become, now that theater is opening up, you know, we're starting in Malvern, Pennsylvania, People's Light Theater, but Broadway is opening up as of September 4th to full capacity. Your next spring, the year next spring for this. Yes, March of 22. Yep. And there is... Which um, I think you're probably really happy with right now. I am. That's right. I am. Because I had to move it. I had to make that call in September of 20 because theaters book a year and a half to two years in advance. And I was quite certain that we would not be out of COVID by this spring. But I had to make that decision a year and a half in advance. And now we're only eight months away. I mean, bam, the time just, it goes in a blink. I mean, to think about, Dan, that it's last week was two years since the workshop you saw. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, just the time, the sense of time going so quickly. But in fact, the competition for talent is huge because all the theaters are opening at the same time. Well, it's kind of like, I have a, discussion group, a quarterly discussion group about articles and books that actually tomorrow night is year 19. It's the 76th meeting that we've had. And there was a great article it's on the stock market, how the stock market has been predicting nothing but greatness for live entertainment now for about five months. But nobody else has. Nobody else has. None of the politicians have. None of the medical authorities, they said, you know, we, we don't know about this. And Wall Street, especially, is just saying, no, no, travel, entertainment, wide open, wide open. And they were just showing the track record of Wall Street, especially example, the Germans in the Second World War were at the height of their power in the autumn of 1941. And the German stock market, they even had a stock market during the war. I didn't know that. They had a stock market, and they were predicting nothing but disaster for the Germans. And the American and British stock markets were predicting the Americans are going to come in. And, and this is before Pearl Harbor, so this is 41. And they said, no, the tide has turned. And the tide turned. The tide turned within about six months. So my sense, the street... I think that the one form of superhuman intelligence that we have on the planet is the stock market. And the reason is the stock market picks up on everything and puts it together and then updates it minute by minute. You know, the average price on Wall Street lasts somewhere like 17 seconds right now. <laughs> and the reason why I think that people are so big, because everybody wants it. I mean, we have a beach, which is three minutes walk from where we live, and it was just packed. Every rule in the book is being broken by every 10 square feet of that beach. And there must have been four or 5,000 people down there today. And, you know, the, I said, why don't you have the elected officials come down and give them tickets, you know? Well, what's interesting that's happening is that... But this is magic, too, the magic that people really, really, really want to see something great. Well, I think that it's also, I've been to a number of industry conferences online that are co-hosted. It's Situation Interactive, which is one of the major live theater marketers and ad agencies in the country. And Google, Google Entertainment, all of the data is showing huge pent-up demand, like what you're talking about. Where we're seeing that in New York City at this moment, in particular, is restaurants. And because all of the guidance is lowered, and thankfully, the vaccine, particularly Moderna and Pfizer, are showing to be more effective than they even thought. Yeah, didn't they have a day last week, first day? Zero deaths. Zero deaths, yeah. yeah. And it's also interesting, 
And we're, for the past 20 minutes, we're proving the anything and everything title of this podcast. No, we're we? talking about magic. <laughs> what it would have been like if we hadn't had the pandemic and you developed the play. You were in competition with everybody else's attention. But you got a year when you had some of the greatest talent in New York. You had their full attention because they weren't doing anything. Yeah, and of course, nobody knew when that would ever loosen up yeah. again. And you boldly made a prediction of when you were going to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I don't know how bold it was because on one hand, I'm thinking, man, do I want to layer on another year to this process? However, the point is that I didn't think it was going to happen. So I was protecting, trying to protect that asset because we might not have gotten another theater date for another two years or two and a half years. So I felt that, unfortunately, the bet was hedged. But there's two things. There's another part of magic. There's two things here. One is... Well, you without courage and magic, you're just 10 years retired from being a shoe salesman. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> With a monkey at the back of the store. <laughs> you know, you're right. And I actually, that made me even forget what I was saying. <laughs> no, no, you're talking about, you've made the prediction, you made the commitment, because what your commitment allowed was everybody else to make a commitment. Well, and that we had to follow up and get contracts re-signed. And there was a concern, potentially, that we would lose some of the people that we had. And in fact, what we were able to do was attract more people to finish up the team. And, you know, because you're an investor, you got that update, which is pretty damn impressive. The yep. people that are enlisted in this project, you know, it's like an A-level team that we're starting at a regional theater. And this is a team that Broadway would lust for. Yeah. You know, so... What's the magic that people want to get involved? I'd like to think, of course, it's just the script that I wrote. <laughs> That's a part of it. But another part of it is when you start attracting really good people, that attracts other really good people. Yeah. So when you have a set designer, like, first of all, starting with my director, Sheldon Epps, when you have someone like Sheldon Epps, that attracts people. And then when you sign a set designer like, David Gallo, who has won multiple Tony and Emmy Awards, lighting designers want to work with David Gallo because his sets are so extraordinary. And which lighting designers? Award-winning lighting designers who love working with other people whose game is as good as theirs. Yeah. And, you know, I've gone from the person that originated this to being the weakest link, <laughs> but, you know, they can't fire me because I wrote it and I'm a producer, <laughs> but... It's gratifying the people we've attracted, but part of that magic goes back to what we talked about last time in terms of relationships. Trust. Is it good? And trust, that's absolutely right. Yeah. That they trust this team, the ability to execute. And as much as you and Babs liked the script, I remember when we had lunch that day and you told me that you wanted to support it. If you didn't think that somehow I could possibly pull this off, you weren't going to invest, you know? Yeah, and I've been invited in other situations over the years to do it, not quite with the kind of product that you had. And I said, nah, that's not really my game. But my game was to, you know, I had an early interest in life in theater, and I participated in the, you know, in theater to the point where I realized it wasn't going to be my career. And... You didn't ask us to join. You didn't ask us. We were just, you know, meeting like we do. We were just chatting like we do. And you were telling us what was new and where it was going. And you took a bathroom break. That was your mistake. You took a bathroom <laughs> break. <laughs> and when you came back, we said, well, support. It was totally unexpected. Yeah, I was. Well, it was totally unexpected, but we had that freedom that it wasn't expected. But it was also frankly, also meant a lot to me financially. It came at a time where we very, very much needed it. But it also was, frankly, very emotional for me. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that my two friends, Dan and Babs, wanted to help support it. I remember <laughs> when I said to you, well, there's two ways to support 
a project. One of them feels good, but the other one is the only thing that moves it forward. Yeah. <laughs> and you said, no, we're prepared to write a check. Yeah. You know, and that was very emotional for me because it was early in the process, totally unexpected and a display of trust that was very validating to me. So I'm incredibly grateful for yeah, that. Yeah, and uh, the fact that it was 500,000 pennies didn't bother you. <laughs> yes, the boxcar actually just showed up <laughs> the other day. We finished counting it the other day. Yeah, <laughs> but my sense is, here's a thought that just occurred to me, is that whenever talented people, well, it's not necessarily talented people, but let's say interested people, let's say interested people, but interested people, bet on other interested people for something that's bigger than them all. I think that those are some of the ingredients of magic. I agree. But it's the betting on other people because the project's bigger than them all. Yeah. You know, getting back to it again, and I think we can even do another session about how do you create magic, you know, because real magic, real magic, that lightning in the bottle, that just sort of happens, like Zoom. The pandemic was the worst thing that ever happened to this country, best thing that ever happened to Zoom. <laughs> you know? Well, it's really interesting because one of my longtime clients, 20 years, is the financial advisor to eight out of the top 12 people at Zoom and has been since the beginning of the company. And I was asking him, I said, you know, were they ready for this? I said, because it's been kind of flawless. I mean, from looking at it as a user. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, probably, I've averaged three hours a day for the last 15 months, some days, seven or eight hours. And I said, um, you know, little here and there, but almost nothing. I mean, Pandora goes down on me about twice a week, you know, where lost the network and everything else. So I said, they went 50 times in one year. And I said, were they ready for this? And they said, yeah, they, they didn't know what it would be, but the head people, they created WebEx before and that got bought by Cisco. And they said that what we've noticed about technology is being ready for something big that's not under your control. In other words, something big could happen. It's not under your control, but you're all prepared for it to happen, okay? You know, I mean, there were other candidates out there. There were other platforms out there, but they had the best graphics. The one thing that the founder, you know, who's sort of the lead person, he said, if it's not as good as people's television, they won't use it. And I think the resolution is really terrific. And the other thing is, it's three clicks and you're anywhere in the world. Yeah, which is amazing. And look at what happened. It's like Sony who owned the personal listening experience with Walkman and was totally taken over and dominated by Apple. Well, prior to the pandemic, let's do a Skype call. Now, they were bought by Microsoft, but it's now Zoom is the generic term. Yeah, where's the Skype guy when Microsoft has a meeting of their top people? Where's the Skype guy said? Yeah, I don't know. But that's, what, you know, it was that kind of a shift. Yeah. Where all of a sudden the generic term became Zoom. Let's do a Zoom. Yeah. Even if you mean Skype, it's let's do a Zoom. And Google makes it confusing when you put this on your Google calendar because the first thing they put is Google Meet on the column. And I've had people click that by mistake because they put it prominently at the top. But somehow Zoom had the magic because I think they were first and they delivered on the promise and they yeah. did it. And the great thing for us, and I'm sure you feel this way, is the breakout rooms are just spectacular. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are. And as a matter of fact, we should do it here where we just, you know, start off with the two of us and then go, <laughs> go talk to ourselves. <laughs> Each of us goes to a separate breakout room. <laughs> and the magic then happens. <laughs> I mean, it is fascinating because the magic, if you will, of this was also the people that it has, I'll just speak for myself, has availed me to, where I'm talking to people in London, I'm talking to people in Paris, I'm talking to people in Italy, I'm talking to people all over the world. Yep. And like that. That's right. The accessibility factor 
is kind of magical. You know, it's amazing. But I think that... And I'm sure backstage, it's really speeded up things too, you know, with all the talent. Like the lighting director can be talking to the set designer. That's right. On a daily basis, the director, the choreographer, they can all talk to each other just like that. Well, and show things. So we've got our first meeting on June 9th with the whole team, which I'm really looking forward to. But so Sheldon and I already had met with David, who did the initial renderings for a set already, which were really cool. And when we first met, you know, my thing was basically work your magic. David Gallo's tremendously talented. And if I started off by telling him, well, here's what I'd like to see. And it, that would be really stupid of me, <laughs> you know, where you've got somebody that good. It's like, go with, let's see, because he's going to show me things I never thought of. Yeah. And I was looking for the window to be about another foot that way. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of people that micromanage like that. Oh, yeah. Those are the people, by the way, in case you already didn't know what are my least favorite people to work with. And at this stage of my life, try to avoid altogether. I had said to Sheldon when we started off, I said, Sheldon, I want you to know I have the no asshole rule. <laughs> and he kind of laughed and said, I think I know what you mean, but tell me what you mean. I said, I don't want anybody involved with this that robs us of the joy of this process. Yeah. I want us to have fun doing it. Look what we're doing. We're creating a fantasy to tell a story. And I don't want anybody to mess that up with their personal issues, which they should work out in therapy, not on the set, and not bring other people down with their toxicity. Yeah. The other thing that really strikes me is that magic is a mindset. And tell me what you mean by that. Well, first of all, you're no asshole. That comes from experience of having had people who have that mindset. The asshole mindset? <laughs> yeah, the asshole mindset. Yeah. And it's a non-collaborative mindset. That's right. So I put together, you know, a number of collaborations, and I've got about five or six of them going, where I just ask that I get full access to the other people's capability, but any money in the short term that's created by it is their money. Okay. And the reason is that I've got a system that pays us really well. So what that does for us, it makes me relaxed about, I, I believe that every one of the collaborations is going to produce a lot of money sometime down the road, but I'm not nervous about it. I just want the talent to create something new that hasn't been created before, something that's uniquely good. And everybody has a good time. Everybody has a good time, you know. And my feeling is when I look at my experiences in lifetime where there's magic, I think those things that I just talked about are always there. The only thing about it is rare to find people with those mindsets because everybody's nervous. Everybody's nervous. Well, since I started my production company, you know, like when my editor would come into me and say, I don't know if this works. And he would preface it that way. They start to talk. I said, wait, wait, wait. I said, don't show it to me. I said, what do you mean? I said, if you need help in talking about a problem, happy to do it. But if you're not yet happy with it, don't show it to me. I want you to be happy with it. And then we'll talk about it. You know? And he looked and he kind of smiled. I said, okay. Yeah. Because I also think you get better work from people when they're invested in it and they know that their opinions are valued. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the worst thing is to be in any kind of a business situation or any kind of relationship where the other person doesn't feel that their input is valued mm -hmm. and they don't feel heard. And the collaboration, the essence of a successful collaboration is that the other person feels heard. Well, and the other one is that everybody's got the thing that's bigger than them that they're focused on. Mm-hmm. Dan, tell me what you mean by the bigger than them. You've mentioned that a few times. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, no one person can create a Broadway play. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, enormous amount of teamwork. That's right. Yes. Even the bad plays where the environment is toxic, there's an enormous amount of talented teamwork. 
No, you're right. You're right. And that's one of the prices you pay for being in that particular industry, that you don't get to pick the culture. You know, I mean, I was in theater to know that 90% of people in theater spend 90% of their adult lives unemployed. Yeah, that's true. So you can't be real choosy if, you know, an opportunity opens up and you don't like the people. But how are you going to be known? How are you going to get better if you don't actually involve yourself in the actual activity? That's right. And people oftentimes don't have the luxury to say no because they got to pay rent that month. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of talent within about five square miles of you that's had a really lean year. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You're right. And, you know, it's also people will say, and I mean, I don't know if this goes along with the magic or not. People will talk about, oh, the, you were lucky. And I don't think luck has anything to do with it. I think recognizing opportunity and then acting on it, which is what a lot of people mistake for luck. You know, well, what I feel is that once you've taken care of how much luck is responsible for everything, then let's start talking about talent and alertness. And- <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Well, I grant it. I grant it. You know, I mean, uh, like I was born healthy. I was born with a good enough mind. I was born at kind of a great time to grow up. And I've got all that. But I said, but. All my classmates who didn't do anything, they had the same luck. (laughs) Right. But I think that that becomes a rationalization. Well, I was unlucky. Yeah. You know, and I'm not talking about if you get hit by a drunk driver. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about in business. Yeah. I think one of the things that really opens you up to luck is just being really interested in People being interested in what other people are doing, be interested in learning things you didn't know before, you know, and everything. So my feeling is that there's a mindset. Here's a really great thing. Let's develop a sub-theme in our podcast series called The Magical Mindset. Yeah, which is different than magical. And to see how much we can use that as sort of an integrating thought and looking at a lot of different things. I mean, fortunately, both of us, you know, have a major new thing that we're developing right now. And partially because of COVID, it's getting better, you know. And one of it is our new program, which is just virtual. We're up around 430, 450 signups. That's fabulous. And they don't go anywhere. They don't go anywhere. Wherever they are, I had a introductory call for people who are starting within the next three months just to, you know, I'm the head guy. So I'm talk to them. And for the next year or two years, three years, there would never be an opportunity for them to have me as their coach. So they jumped out. And so we had about 130, probably. And I was talking to people that I remember from Taiwan, from Vietnam, from Malaya, from Malaysia, from Mumbai and in India, from Dubai, from Ghana and Africa, you know, and it added up to about 15, 20 different countries. And they were all there on the screen and they said, that's great. They're all paid for, checks have cleared, everything. And they're just fascinated to start and they don't have to go anywhere. When you think about that, it's astounding. Yeah. It's like that yeah. a split moment in time. It happened like that. And here's what I'm saying. I bet all the talent in the entertainment world, in Broadway, and in the theater world are twice as good next year just because they appreciate the opportunity to do what they do for a living. And don't you think that should always be the case with all of us? Well, with the really good ones, I think it is. I read a little history of Laurence Olivier. There's only one actor buried in Westminster Abbey. And that's Laurence Olivier. You think of Britain with all its theater history and Laurence Olivier is buried there. So I just looked into Laurence Olivier and the biggest thing he was known for when he was doing live theater was if it was the hundredth performance, it was as fresh as his first performance. You've got a lot of tales. I mean, you've told a lot of stories about Laurence Olivier, how he could upstage other people by doing nothing. But what he did is about 20 minutes or so before the 
performance started, they had these little eye holes in the curtain and he'd go and he had this mantra. He said, this is not last night's play. This is not last night's audience. My lines are not last night's lines. And he'd just go through the checklist and he would get as scared as he was on opening night. But that happened on the 50th night, happened on the 100th night. He would scare himself into the first night energy. That's great. And after a while, they bury you in Westminster Abbey. (laughs) But, you know, I think that what that comes down to, what I'm hearing is don't take any opportunity for granted. You know, if it's your 100th performance, it's the first one for that audience that they're going to see. So you owe it to them as a professional to deliver on that as if it's, the first performance. Yep. Margaret, my wife and I went and saw Lena Horne's one woman show on Broadway, which was unbelievable. And that's where I first experienced the sensation of being lifted out of my seat. That's when standing ovations actually meant something. And she lifted us out of our seats. It was astounding. And we realized, by the way, that was just the end of the first act. We didn't know what the hell she was going to do the second act because, you know, it was so amazing. First time I ever saw a play three times, what I noticed, which was so incredible, is the things that we were sure that only we saw that night, because it seemed so offhanded and spontaneous, was there every time we saw it. And she made, created the magic Mm -hmm. for the audience that you were seeing something unique and for the first time. And that's part of being a pro. But I think that applies to all business. If you're pitching and you're pitching this idea to the 25th person you're hoping to get buying it into it, you better come across with enthusiasm about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And because for them, that's your first performance. I find the best way to guarantee enthusiasm is to actually love what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Don't be enthusiastic about something that doesn't excite you. Yeah. yeah you're right. Yes. <laughs> Then it's faulty. It's faulty. Well, that's what they call phoning it in. Yeah. 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 And that happens with performances. That happens with people at work. Yeah. All right. Magical mindset. I love that. Yeah. You always have to have a center to the center. So I think that that's a good thing. But just to add up our whole notion of branding, because I think people fail so often at branding that there must be a lot to it to discover. I think there's a lot to discover, but people think that it's somehow a fill in the blanks and they don't realize that in telling any story, you have to approach it with fresh eyes and be unique. It's like the performances we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And again, that doesn't mean you reevaluate, that you don't reevaluate. You reevaluate, you refine, constantly refine what you're doing, just like your example of Olivier looking through the curtain to get himself into a particular frame of mind. Yeah, yeah, it's good. All right. This was fun, as it always is, this was fun. Magical mindset, we'll talk next time. Always enjoy it. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.